Hello and welcome to Plan A.show's Factoid Fridays. Before we start this episode, I just wanted to mention that it contains spoilers to the film Don't Look Up. So if you haven't seen it and don't want the ending spoilt for you, maybe skip this one. For the rest of you, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Plan A's Factoid Fridays. This is the podcast where Scott, Niels and I present and talk about interesting facts and topics that we've come across in recent weeks that are connected to sustainability and Enkelfähigkeit. As it so happens, this week Niels is on holiday and not with us, so it's just Scott and myself. To be honest, Scott, I'm quite looking forward to this, firstly because we <laughs> haven't had any time together without Niels chaperoning us. and That's true. Uh, and also... I'm quite excited just to see how yeah it goes without his measured and well thought out opinions and supervision. <laughs> you know, feels feels all a bit like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You think we might go off the rails? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'll catch us in the edit. Um, anyway, today I thought we could talk a little bit about solar and wind energy. So this came about because I was generally chatting to Niels over the last couple of weeks and we were talking about how it feels like it's getting harder and harder to concentrate on and sort of find positive things to talk about. And that was something that I really experienced when doing research for this Factoid Friday episode. I found that the bad news currently seems to massively outweigh any that are positive. But I did come across some interesting developments around the shift to greener energies, which is also something that links to our prior episodes about the impacts of the war in Ukraine. So it kind of only seemed fitting as a subject to carry forward. Okay. But before we get into that, I just wanted to share a couple of thoughts on eco-anxiety and climate doom that I came across, because that's something we keep on touching upon. In short, the advice that I came across was that the often invoked existential dread just leads to paralysis and inaction. And so, you know, it's useless and counterproductive. Unless that's the goal that you're actually trying to achieve yeah (laughs) very much so but yeah so they kind of said well in order to be able to you know move anything change anything we must remain stubbornly optimistic and I just somehow really like the phrase stubbornly optimistic it feels like something that everyone us included should co-opt it just felt very fitting the idea of plan a stubbornly optimistic well that's my that's my attitude towards life anyway especially since i've been in germany you know it's like it's always this superman story as soon as you leave your home world and you leave your own son you become like some sort of a superhero because you do things other than other people do i think that's actually the basis of that and when i came to germany this this stubborn optimism although i was like one of the poorest people you can imagine coming here to germany has always been a way that i could differentiate myself in a in a sea full of people who aren't optimistic about things and I just think it's the only way to be in a world that would otherwise have you think that there's no hope you know that's I think why I find it so fitting it's the only way to be at the moment in time (laughs) I think it's the only way to be ever it's just sometimes we get we get a little off track uh, about what it means to to be us that's very true anyway after that brief and immediate detour at the start we've got a lot (laughs) of stuff to talk about so I'm just gonna start by throwing some facts at you you ready Scott okay I'm ready Cool. So the first thing I came across, which kind of kicked off this entire bit of research on this topic, was a report by the independent think tank Ember, which stated that if current renewable trends around the introduction of solar and wind energy can be replicated globally and sustained, the power sector would be on track for the global 1.5 degree goal. Overall, it felt like a quite massive announcement and claim. Like, if you 
think about the commitments that have been made, the fact that most of the news around that centre on the fact that we're unlikely to meet it. I thought it felt like a real positive kind of snippet of news in a sea of otherwise bad ones. And when I looked into it, it seems slightly sensible. It's hopeful, but sensible, because basically they were looking at um, the 10-year average compound growth rate, which is about 20% for wind and solar power, and then just assumed or, or say that assuming that that can be maintained for the rest of the decade, so only till 2030, then we should be on track to potentially meet that. Okay, I I saw something similar, and this is a very, let's say, um, fitting to the intro. This is the way you would interpret data if you were stubbornly optimistic. Yeah, so this is looking at this thing in a very, you know, ignoring some things that could go horribly wrong in order for this to go almost right. And I, I think it's a good way of looking at things, you know. And there are those of us who actually need to hear this to get out of the paralysis, right? So it's just like, okay, all we need is a little extra effort. We can make this happen. Let's do it. Like, we're not far off. Yeah. And it feels like there is maybe the phrase stubbornly optimistic, and I love that you linked linked it and kind of made it, made it the theme, rightly so. There is an element around the impact of the war in Ukraine to, and driving the move away from gas and this kind of renewed urgency behind investing in renewables. So renewable sources accounted for around about 10% of global energy generation. In 2021, that's sort of risen by a percentage point in 2020. And then there's some outliers such as the Netherlands, Australia and Vietnam, which driven quite hard at switching towards renewable, roughly 10% of their electricity demand is being met by that in the last two years. Of course, it's not all great news in in the sense that there are still some challenges to overcome. And firstly, that's the global rollout. Uh, That would need to happen at the pace that we talked about, which means that there are massive hurdles around supply chain and regulatory elements that governments need to overcome to make it happen. And then, as I mentioned, that in 2021, post-pandemic, as the world and economies and everyone's life started rebounding, we saw the largest recorded annual increase in electricity consumption that has been recorded. These are things that we do need to address. So it's not just plain sailing. Yeah, okay, no, well, yeah, it's a, I, believe me, there are enough people that won't let us forget that we're, uh, we're, we're on the brink of death. And as long as some people are screaming in between, like, let's not give up. <laughs> <laughs> Human nature is to give up. If you think you've lost, you're gonna get eaten. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's fight or flight now. And I think we need people fighting. Yeah, it's a good way to describe it, unfortunately. Moving on from that, and pretty much building on this, I I wanted to talk about the the political response. So there's some plans, interesting ones by the European Commission, and they're looking at trying to, yeah, facilitate a large-scale rollout of solar energy, largely to wean Europe off Russian gas, but I guess also because it seems like the right thing to do, hopefully. And given that solar costs have dropped by 80% over the last decade, so the implementation costs have been massively reduced, but at this moment in time, only around 5% of EU electricity comes from solar, or that was in 2020. So as a response to this, what the EU aims to do with its plan, which is called European Solar Rooftops Initiative. Basically, they're trying to reduce the permitting times for rooftop installations of solar panels to a maximum of three months, then push countries to use EU funding to launch support programs around the installation, 
and then install solar energy on the rooftops of all suitable public buildings by 2025, which again, within a three-year timeline, seems quite ambitious. Well, I mean, that would underline that someone has bought into the fact that it's a huge, huge immediate problem. So that's already a good sign that that's making its way through. Look, this is the way I see the whole world. Lobbies run everything, right? So if if you have, you know, if you're looking at a world 60 years ago and you're you're a young Ralph Nader or you're, you know, just just pick any of the the like 10 people that the the right think are the devil and and look at those people and they figured it out a long time ago. They said, "Well, if there's if there's any way we're going to make this world change, we're going to have to have a lobby ourselves, right?" And I think the next 10 years are going to be really telling for all of this because that's when the returns are being made by the big investments that are still kind of iffy about it, you know, so all these ankle fake type of things that are coming, they have to prove themselves first, prove yep. themselves positive. And as soon as that happens, uh, then you're going to have all the money in the world going towards all of these initiatives, and then it's going to get really quick, yep. really quick. Yeah. So yep. if, if, if this is what you believe needs to happen to the world so that it can be fixed, which I think a lot of us actually do, be prepared, strap yourself in, because it's it. The rocket ship just got basically <laughs> ignited. Let's hope you're right. Touching on this lobbyism, as part of this scheme, there is this initiative to also create what is called the EU Solar Alliance, which aims to bring together governments, training providers, and workers, basically, so the manufacturers of solar panels, to make sure or to to support this sort of rollout at scale. And as you rightly put it, there probably is a lot of vested economic interest in all of this. So lobbyism will play a role. Yeah, I mean, it has to. There's unless we're unless we're just going to tear down the system, you have to play the system the way that it's been molded, right? And it's it's an evolution over time, and things will change, you know, and it'll always be different. Things are always going to go from one way to the next, and from left to right, and yin and yang, or whatever. But we are on our way to a more, let's say, left economy when it comes to that. And I, I really do believe that. And you know, I just wish. The United States would have been a little nicer to Central and South America over the last 200 years because it would be nice if they could play nice together. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of potential, you know, for for the world if people of the same continent, let's say, people of the same time zone would just stick together. I think if you really look at the world from the north to the south, we are split into ways that could just like be massively helpful towards each other. If you just take this cold weather mentality and you bring it all the way down to the people in the warm weather and you just say, okay, look, we're this time zone, we're all one people and we got all the things we need to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that makes any sense, but that was just... It, uh, it does. It reminds me of something I read, actually, this morning before we started recording about, I think it was the Hoover Dam running out of water in the U.S., what <laughs> is, is, that, is that something like or, or the the reservoir the big lake in front of it because it could that's be, the yeah. one that 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 feeds a lot of Cal- of california isn't it yeah, right? yeah exactly well i mean it's, it's and definitely Mexico Nevada. as well yeah and what made me think of it was this like you said that there needs to be um a sort of joint response and it goes across borders because i mean yeah. and in this case you know the water levels dropping low and apparently it's getting to the point of dead water levels it's called when there wouldn't be enough water to run the dam as in the kind of electricity production there and of course if the water fails that not only affects farmers in and around california but also of course people within mexico so it's a kind of cross-border cross-country issue because where are the mexicans going to go when they do run out of water and need water so yeah i just it just made me think of that well that's that's one of those like global catastrophes that we're just 
ignoring so that we can actually not just wake up in the morning and off ourselves, you know. <laughs> but uh, water is a problem too. Yeah. Uh, that's that's actually when I consider like where am I going to go with my family and what am I going to do. That's the only consideration. That's my only consideration is what is access to water over time, right? And for me, Germany is one of the best places to be. The rest of it's really critical unless you're going to be in. Norway, Sweden, Denmark, you know, those areas, or on mountaintops that get enough snow or whatever, no. water water might be an issue. As part of this article, there was also some technology talked about, and this kind of links back to solar energy, which was, um, it was basically solar-powered driven fans that would be able to take moisture out of the air and convert it into drinking water. Now, yeah. obviously, there is a limited amount of scale in this, but it was saying a system like that in a place where it's sunny throughout most of the time, California is obviously a perfect place for that, it could support, like one of those systems could support family with drinking water, yeah. which I thought was quite incredible. I'd never come across. That's pretty incredible, unless you're in the middle of the desert. And then they say, oh, it's got to be sunny all the time and 80% humidity. <laughs> uh, that's Alabama, by the way, uh, but uh, it's got enough water for as it goes. I mean, they actually have in the South, you know, you've got Atlanta, Florida, and, and, and Northern Alabama battling over water supply for the last 15 or 20 years. And it hasn't gotten out of hand yet, but let's give it another 100 years. Well, I think, or even another year or so, they were saying as part of that, because the lack of water meant that farmers had less to grow with, which meant that during this growing season, they used a lot well, they grew a lot less, basically. And yeah. that's, of course, only going to be noticeable on the shelves of supermarkets by next year, as we currently, or I guess the people of California, are uh, eating last year's crops. I suppose it's a global economy. We're all eating the same almonds, aren't we? Well, can I suggest a, a, an episode for you to prepare, maybe? like one, one Because one of the things that I keep thinking is like, okay, 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 fine. Yeah, we're talking about like not enough water to feed humanity or for for... The, the Midwest of the United States to, to, to grow so much that they can export it all over the place, right? But what would it look like, or are there any initiatives, or is it being thought about, like, what happens if we stop transporting food? Is it, is it possible if we were to just, like, cut off each region from each other and say, okay, look, if, if it has to be transported with a ship or a plane, you can't transport it, and then we go back to local foods. So in, in, in Germany, we would eat a bunch of apples and potatoes. But, I mean, that's it. Like, the variations would stop, but the, the basic food supply would, would continue. That's an interesting point. I, mean, I think the funny thing is, or, or the first thing that I have a reaction to is, I, I think it's it would actually be the other way around. So at this moment in time, because of the global economy, we have very limited variation in terms of the foodstuffs that we grow and biodiversity what it would have been like in a less centralized global economy because of course there's a handful of agricultural seed businesses and a number or or a smaller number of economically viable kind of foods to grow en masse for for profit that we actually probably or arguably see less variety than we would with a more localized and so yes of course you might not get the tropical kind of stuff yeah that's what i'm talking about that's the variation i'm talking about but yeah yeah. you would get six different kinds of potatoes in germany again because when i came to germany like one of the things that i really love when we when we would eat the white asparagus is 
the I was in the northern part of Germany, and the 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 mother of my girlfriend used to buy a different potato type each time we would eat it. So I had like five or six times the white asparagus because it's only in season for like six weeks, and then each time there was this potato, and it was the first time I realized potatoes actually don't taste chalky and like the American big spud potato. It just tastes horrible. And so, but I've noticed over time that that's become less and less the case. You really have to drive down like country roads to find different potato variations anymore. So, um, yeah, that's that type of variation I'm sure would come back. But I just wonder if there's any, because I mean, it seems like something, this is always goes back to the thing. Like, I don't, I, I don't understand. I always thought the world worked no matter what happens, you know, the, the, the global whatever pulls out a plan out of the, uh, the filing cabinet and says, okay, we're prepared for this, you know, like, but I just wonder whether people are actually thinking, what's it going to look like when we realize we shouldn't be doing this part of it? It's, you know, or it's not sustainable anymore. Like there's not enough water. What are we going to do? And, and it's, um, I was just thinking like, maybe you could do some research on, Mm. are there any plans being made in that direction? You know, what's the recourse? Because you can't just let the water run out and then have everybody dehydrating you know, <laughs> let's let's talk about uh, five degrees and two years. <laughs> uh, that's that's a little easier to take than not being able yeah. to drink. Um, okay, uh, so what's what's the next fact? Yes, coming back, we've talked about solar, wind, and then specifically um, solar energy generation. And obviously, one of the key issues around the way we generate and consume electricity at this moment in time is the storage solution. So you kind of, you know, you have electricity is very much just in time in the sense that it's generated when it needs needs to be. And we can do that with fossil fuels quite easily. But of course, with clean energy, wind and solar, you need to be able to capture that when there is sun, when there is wind, and then share it or put it into the network when it is needed, which might not be at the same time. So you might need some sort of storage solution with batteries currently being obviously very, very inefficient. Is, is that the case? Because I don't know anything about the arguments for batteries. So batteries in and of themselves are just inefficient. Yeah, storage so, for, for energy. You use a lot of raw materials to create batteries, and then you can't really store energy for all that long efficiently. You just consistently lose some. And then, of course, the batteries degrade over time as well, depending on how they're used. So they okay. need to be managed efficiently. It's it it is quite intensive like so in in theory that only works very well if you use battery storage for a short period of time which which can work and is likely to work that said i think there there are going to have to be alternative solutions and i came across one that i thought was pretty well sci-fi kind of stuff so this is scientists at the chalmers university of technology in gothenburg sweden and they've been working on this issue or problem for quite some time but recently made a breakthrough that would allow or have demonstrated that it is possible to capture and store solar energy for up to 18 years not in a battery type setting so it's significantly more radical in terms of how you would generate and store electricity from solar energy and then that would also mean that kind of storage that we can obviously use that energy that's been stored to put out electricity whatever time we need it What it's based on is that it's a specifically designed molecule of carbon, hydrogen, and nitrogen that uh, changes shape when it comes into contact with sunlight. And the shape shifts into what is called an energy-rich isomer. It's basically rearranging the atoms of, of the molecule. And that then can be stored in liquid form 
for whenever you need it. So basically you're kind of liquidly storing wind or sunlight and that apparently could be stored for up to 18 years. That That's science fiction stuff. It really that's, is, isn't it? That is the stuff of my childhood books that I used to read. It really seems kind of godlike uh, when you think about that. Science isn't for everybody for sure, but uh, if they can actually make that work, that those are the kind of things that prove to me like, okay, these minuscule tiny things that they keep saying are the smallest things on the planet and then they break it open and then there's a universal stuff inside of that they really can only say all that mathematically so a lot of the stuff is like hard math and then and then they come out and say no matter how which way around we calculate it for 15 years we come to the thing that there has to be this boson whatever it is so we can't see it but we know it must be there and then science brings out things like this you know yeah. man-made molecules that shape shift depending on the situation that they're in in order to store energy that we need uh, i hope we can get there before we kill ourselves because like, that that's really like promising stuff you know that's star travel type of stuff well um, it gets it gets one better so not only can you store this the the basically wind or sun like that but they've also demonstrated and this is kind of why i guess it was was recognized and why i came across it because they recently published a study, this was in Cell Reports Physical Science, and what they did was the Swedish researchers sent this unique molecule, which was loaded with Swedish solar energy, to colleagues at Shanghai Jiao Chong University, where it then was released and converted um, into electricity using the generator they had developed for that purpose. I, so, I read that article. I was oh, I saw nice. that. I did. I saw that. Yeah. Okay. And I, I was thinking the whole time, like I saw something just like this. The other. Yeah. No. I remember them sending it, and they were able to release it again. Yeah. It's mad, isn't it? So I mean, yeah, it, that's really crazy. The, the 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 article that I read summarized it as essentially Swedish sunshine was sent to the other side of the world and converted into electricity in China. That's cool. Yeah. And it just does seem very Star Trek. That is. That's the beginning, you know, those either either like someone pops out of the future and, and kills the person that came up with that, or it is what gets us then, you know, to to Jupiter or something. It, it's that those kind of things are game changers that I thought the same thing when I read about LEDs for the first time, you know, 20 something years ago. I thought that the same thing when I read about like Bluetooth technology, I was like, man, that's going to change things. 3D uh, printing. Uh, there's just a few things that, that come up uh, and every once in a while you're just like, oh, snap <laughs> that's what we were missing i always find the question really interesting why do certain advances or technology advances make it into the mainstream get developed get the funding get the backing and of course in the past or in in, in recent decades that has largely been driven by the idea oh this could be a really really good military application and that sort of drives the funding but with a lot of this sort of technology you would just hope that someone sees the incredible well positive potential but also i mean economically it should if it can if something like that or things like that can work at scale can fundamentally change how we consume how we create energy for example or whatever it is that's changing then you would think there should be a significant financial incentive to invest in that what else are you going to invest in these days well, I mean, there's two, there's two, there's a few things that usually uh, go into that. One is how disruptive is it to, let's say, in the in midlife lobbies, right? So if if you're in the middle of your 100 year lobby and then someone comes and wants to disrupt after 50 years what you've been working on, of course you're going to tear it down. 
course you're going to tear it down. You're in the middle of your heyday. It's not, it's not going to happen. You're going to buy it and lose it. You're going to break it, whatever. And then the other thing is it has to be manageable from a central point, right? So if, if, you, if you have like alternative medicines that everybody can grow in their backyard or something, of course, that's not going to, it's going to be stigmatized. It's going to be dogmatized against and all that kind of stuff. So if you're looking at something that's so complicated that it has to be produced in a factory that has to be invested in by, by big money, then yes, it's going to be a winner no matter what, right? And so that's that's one of the, like I look at this as an as a let's say a stubborn optimist, which also means that I'm not an irrealist. Like I, I actually know that things there's certain things that won't happen. So if this was something you could, oh, this particular rock you can find it in every backyard, and if you just pour some milk on it, it actually gives unlimited energy forever. There would be a religion against it tomorrow that would keep everybody from actually doing that. Like if you pour that milk on that rock, you're gonna go to hell. Like that's what that's what's gonna happen. So that like what you're telling me now is actually something that some industry can get their hands on and make a transition into, right? That could be something that, you know, the first mover into this was like a shell or something that's going to be like, you know what? <laughs> this is exactly what we've been looking for. We can put a patent on it. We can keep other people from doing it. We can make it way too expensive. So let's let's do that. It's going to work. It's going to change things. I, I promise. I, you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> God, I really hope you're right. Um, I guess then the the thing on on this and is on the same kind of theme or what we've been talking about again on solar energy it's 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 another kind of development I came across that which is completely different to this storing and transporting solar energy but similarly impressive in terms of what what they can potentially do and what technology manages is about night solar panels is that something you've come across Scott? No, a night solar panels like like the reflection from the moon. Well, in essence, yes, it's solar panels that can work at night, but they don't use um, the moon um, or or light as such, as if I understand it correctly. So they're kind of perhaps misnamed a little bit. But yeah, that's a misnomer. Let's yeah. let's call it what it is. They um, night, night energy, nighttime energy. They they were developed by scientists at University of California. Davis, and then also in cooperation with Stanford, I think. Basically, it works by adding a thermoelectric generator, which is a device that produces currents from temperature differences. Yeah, I know. I know him. I know him well, actually. I got a friend who's building a. a, Interesting. I had no idea. I'd never come across them before, so I had to look up what they do. But yeah, apparently you, you attach one of those to this kind of specific type of solar panel, which works by using the heat or infrared light radiated from the surface of the solar panel into space on clear nights. Mm-hmm. So essentially, it sort of works the opposite way around that a solar panel would. So um, can it work both day and night? That would be awesome if it's if it's like producing energy during the day and then like six hours into the night, it changes its method. Good question. I don't think so, but I don't okay. exactly know. But essentially, so like I said, they work the same way as the the solar panels that work in the day, but kind of in reverse. So every night, the heat that escapes from the Earth in form of infrared radiation, which happens in order to keep the planet at a constant temperature, so it uses that energy rather than the energy that comes in from the sun, it uses the energy that goes out from, from the Earth towards space. Yeah. And I, I mean, again, they're not, they're not massively powerful at this moment in time. They apparently can generate up to sort of 50 watts of power per square meter. 
which is about a quarter of what the daytime solar panels can generate. However, of course, the nighttime generators do work during the day if there is no light coming in, so it's a cloudy day, there is no sun, or you could move them away from the sun, point them away, then they do apparently have some sort of efficiency. And the application, of course, is not only necessarily just there, but you could also use that technology to harness um, the generated heat from machinery or other kind of larger processes. So things might have to be different, built differently, the technology adapted, but essentially the idea is the same. So I thought it's nice, it's a niche kind of technology at the moment, but it fits in nicely and it demonstrates exactly what we were talking or what you were talking about, that you know, if you do push these kind of things, there are a lot of possibilities. Yeah, I mean, and there's, <clears throat> honestly, I think if we look into this, there are, like thousands and thousands of initiatives and promising technologies that are coming up and and just with the you know the curve of development it's gonna it's it's actually exponential in its time frame so if we look at just the next 10 years starting now and 10 years from now and we're five years away from as a society being able to discover what's actually going to save us as far as energy is concerned and and it's going to be it's going to be weird and it's going to be wonky or whatever it is it's going to be there but there are there are lots and lots of initiatives going on right now and what i was saying the buddy of mine he's taking this technology as well and anywhere that there's a there's a temperature change this this can work and what they're doing is he's he's put together a so he comes from the fracking industry and i think it pretty much uh killed his soul for 10 years because even though he was making money and he didn't really you know in the beginning i don't think it was this uh, this big i'm worried about the planet thing but he got a lot of shit from his surroundings, right? And he just couldn't take it anymore. And he also realized what they were doing to the planet. So this all kind of like over a 10-year period wigged him out, let's say. And uh, he put together something that they're going to run on generators at the fracking fields, which uh, uses these gener like basically the things that are happening there have a lot of like temperature changes. And so they're, used, they're putting on these big generators that are running anyway, and they're recapturing through these, uh, through these ways. And I think they're, they've got efficiencies of like up to 80% better than, than um, before. So they're saving fuel. They're also uh, um, regaining the energy. It's just not getting lost. And, and there's millions of applications in the world where you lose heat and you don't recapture it. And it's all, that's always been a big thing too long with the storage so if you can capture and store it and in, in really uh, cool ways that's why i believe that this this technology you're talking about and things similar will definitely be what what's to come i just hope they don't keep those solutions so rare that they that they become stupid expensive and can only be paid for by industries because that's where the most money comes from and doesn't benefit any of us but yeah. if you just look at all this and the revolt that's going to be coming over the next 10 years and you put those two things together maybe just maybe humanity will get like the sword it needs in its hand to kill this beast yeah i i, I think you're right it's really the challenge isn't it that that, that you require significant and major structural investment. I was I was thinking while you were talking, it reminded me of the, the whole kind of issue around installing alternative, you know, home heating systems that don't use gas. So, you know, heat pumps seems to be the the big thing there. And I, I was reading about the kind of opposition that you still get to heat pumps, specifically at this point in, in the UK, where, you know, people will just talk about, oh, it's way too cold, you can't use heat pumps, fundamentally misunderstanding you know, how the technology works because it's very successful in Scandinavian countries. And and the reason what made me think about it while, while you were talking was is, is just the fact that 
it's clearly something that happens when you don't have the right backing, you don't have the right investment, and you don't have the right people going, no, this is a good idea because X, Y, and Z. So, you know, there is still enough lobbyism, I don't know, from from behind the fossil fuel veil to go, no, actually, it's it's not as good as your gas boiler. And but that's changing. I mean, that's hopefully. changing. No, no, it's not. Hopefully, just look at the world, man. Look at like all the companies that you go in and out of. Yeah, are filled with representatives of the planet. Yeah. So and the representative of the planet look like this. A bunch of old gray dudes who want to do the same thing the way they always want to do it. Our generation is the first generation to actually stand up and a bunch of white dudes are like, listen, I don't know if we're the right people to be making these decisions. So we need to make things a little more diverse. We need to have more women in the decision making and our generation is still kind of like no 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 we're going to preach it but we're not going to practice it but the the generation below us they're not having it anymore like they're not having this homogenic uh, uh, make the decision as a white male for me kind of thing so i really really believe things are going to change and right now you just have most money and a few old people standing on the side of these big industries who are at the end of their lobby period. The new lobby period started 25 years ago, and it's got 75 years to go. And in 25 years, it's going to be in the middle of its heyday. And then there's going to be some like secret behind the scenes alternative ideas to that that they're just going to start barking and they're going to get torn down and it's going to turn into this thing. And left is just as bad as right there, I'm telling you. But the point is, the, sh- the time has changed. The cycle is here. And, and we're, we're at the very beginning of the productive part of this lobby cycle, right? It's going to turn into a horrible beast like it always does. But we need to see these next 50 years as the ones where most of the productivity is going to come out of it. And if we can just learn a little bit from the past and pay attention and not drive drunk like we always do, we might just maybe accidentally do everything right. <laughs> accidentally do it well that that would be the uh twist in in the story of humanity by accident yeah we, by we, accident we, can... we we have like a a, a nailed it 10 landing you know it's like <laughs> it's like never having practiced and then going to the olympics and then doing some gym move where you just land automatically it can happen it can happen do you, do you remember did you did you ever watch that film with leonardo dicaprio don't look up yeah, yeah, no, I did. That's right. uh, yeah. It just reminded me of it. Mark Rylance has that great turn as the billionaire. And, you know, at the end when they're all sitting in the control room and, and all of their talk of a, you know, 10 out of 10 landing and they're trying to mine these, you know, and avert catastrophes and it all goes wrong. And it just reminded me of the incredulous reaction in the room. And I thought, is that more likely or the accidental 10 out of 10 landing that we're talking about? Likely is more uh, that the 99.9 infinite idea of we just mess it all up and not to say the F word, but basically that's more likely, but impossible is nothing, you know? And I like about that movie is like his his data tells him you're going to get eaten by a jerk or lurk. <laughs> and, then, and then I just totally forgot about it when she walks out onto this new planet and he's like, oh, what's that? Uh, that's a jerk or lurk. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> I don't I don't remember what the name of the animal was but it was just like yep. uh, that that's exactly how we run I thought and this is just going off on like a small little thing I enjoyed that movie for a totally different reason than like 99% of the people that I've talked to about that movie enjoyed it because I felt like Leonardo DiCaprio and the makers of the movie 
like resigned to the fact that it's all bullshit. Like that is that is the entire thing that I took from it. It's like all you can really do is sit down and have dinner with your family and it's gonna fuck it's gonna roll over you no matter what. And he's been on the super like he would have never put himself into a position to do a movie where basically at the end of it, it was like, it doesn't matter what side of the story you're on in this. It really doesn't matter whether you looked up or whether you didn't look up or whether you were fighting for something or you weren't or whether you cheated on your wife or you didn't. At the end of the day, all that's going to happen is you're going to get obliterated. And so that that's the message I took from that movie. And that's the way that I live my life. That's why I can be stubbornly optimistic because I'm just like, listen, I, I, I have now ankle fake, which I do think is something that I don't want to fight for, but I want to preach about and I want to people and I want to get people in a positive stubbornly optimistic mood with it but at the end of the day it's not going to push me over the edge or make me like some stressed out ball of person I think that taking that from that movie is what I needed to get from that movie but most of the people that I see saw it as like a super critical towards society thing and I, I mean, it's critical for a different reason. I mean, they saw one side of the story being right and the other side of the story being wrong. And I saw all of it being manipulated. Yeah. So nobody's right if everybody's wrong. <laughs> and uh, anyway, um, we should probably get close to wrapping this up. Well, that sounds good. How did you like it? Was it was that a good conversation between the two of us? Or did we, did we go off topic too much? No, I think it's good. I've got one final thing to wrap up with. If you yeah, want, it's really it. short. Sure, no, no problem. So yeah, to, just to wrap up then, and very much on uh, the theme of stubbornly optimistic, which is something this podcast beautifully seems to have morphed into. I just wanted to give a shout out to an anonymous French dude who won two hundred million in the Euro Millions jackpot earlier this year. And he has used the money to set up an environmental foundation which will protect forests and biodiversity. The foundation is called Aniyama, which is named after a city in Ivory Coast. And this has been confirmed. So the guy is anonymous. We don't know who he is. But it was confirmed by the French company that manages lotteries in France. They said, yeah, this donation was made. They weren't 100%. Well, they didn't name any figures, but it it seems very much like the significant amount of that chunk, the vast majority of that 200 million, as it's the largest ever donation made with lottery winnings. And I just think, yeah, how, what, what a beautiful thing to do and talk about stubborn optimism to just kind of go, yeah, I've got all this money, but here you go. It's for forests and biodiversity and certainly something to be aspiring to, I thought. It sounds to me like somebody who was just like, if I ever win in the lottery, God, I swear to you, I'm going to give most of it away. All I need is 10 million. That's all I really need. And then I can help my family and they can do their thing. So if you give me 200, 190, that's going back into the planet. And Karma did it and he held his word. Uh, that sounds really awesome. So that means we could at least, without knowing who it is, uh, um, keep our eyes on that foundation. Yep, yep. We'll, we'll put a link in, the, that, in yeah. the show notes and uh, yeah, see how that develops. That's awesome. Let's do more of these like optimistic things. That was fun today. I liked it. Excellent. Yeah. Well, perfect. Thank you very, very much for listening to our show. We hope you also enjoyed it and we'll be back for more. Niels will also be back soon with some exciting content, so don't miss that. Until then, on behalf of Scott, Niels and myself, stay resilient and until next time. Goodbye. Bye. This was Plan A.show. Go there to download or share this episode or to read its transcript. Links to the articles and reports mentioned in this episode can also be found there. 
If you have any comments or questions, please email us at feedback at plan-a.show. If you work in any of the areas discussed on this podcast, we would love to record an episode with you. Please do get in touch. Plan A.show was created by Eric Barr, Niels Ganser, and Scott Denton. This episode's music is by Nikolai Svotskov. Thank you for listening.